Lamar, great idea to try out this new seafood restaurant. Seems like a long time since I've had fish, and I keep driving by this place and wonder what it's like. Well, wonder no more, Bill. It's quiet enough in here to allow for conversation, but it's, uh, it's lively enough to be interesting. And uh, their lunch specials are a great deal. Well, good afternoon, gentlemen. Hope you're having a good day. What can I get you to drink today? Uh, I'd like some iced tea, and I already know what I want to order. I had the salmon special last time I was here, and it was excellent. Uh, but I think I'll try the fried platter this time. I'm a little low on cholesterol today. <laughs> I have all the cholesterol I need right now. I'd also like a glass of tea, please, and I'll have the salmon on his recommendation. Yeah, that's a good choice, sir, and I'll be right back with your drinks. You know, Bill, uh, we've been getting together for months now to discuss my questions about God and about Christianity, and it seems the more time goes by, the more intense I've become about this search of mine. Well, is that good or bad? Well, maybe, uh, maybe some of both. I feel some kind of inner pressure to resolve the big question of my relationship with God, and it's made me a bit restless. I need to come to some kind of conclusion to make a decision one way or the other. You know, I can't remain in suspension indefinitely, so I guess the bad part is that I'm a little frustrated. I seem to no sooner get one question answered than another one pops up. Maybe you've noticed. I can certainly see your struggle, Lamar, and, and I wish it could be avoided, but... Since this is the most important thing in life, I, I think it's worth whatever amount of struggle it takes. I predict that, based on, on my experience at least, you'll always have some questions, but that before too long, you'll have resolved enough of the big ones that you'll be able to sense some real progress and peace in, in establishing the kind of personal relationship with God that, that gives life its meaning and purpose. Boy, I hope you're right, Bill. Seems the good part of this is that at least I finally feel like I'm doing something about developing my spiritual and my, uh, you know, my inner life. And that feels good after so many years of confusion and uncertainty and even procrastination. I can't tell you how much I look forward to our discussions. Uh, do you remember where we left off the last time on the airplane? You mean when I shared that shocking information about how doing good deeds has nothing to do with getting to heaven? Exactly. And I like your word, shocking. That's exactly how it hit me. Frankly, it seems a little hard to believe, and I, and I think I finally figured out what bothers me about it. It's, it's too good to be true. It's too simple or too easy of a solution. To say that all you have to do to be eternally forgiven and assured a place in heaven is to accept a gift, it seems contrary to everything in life. It just seems so unnatural. What do you mean? For instance, uh, no one is standing in line to give uh, you and me a paycheck for staying at home in bed sleeping. Ever heard the phrase that there's no such thing as a free lunch? Sure. It's a lot like that old adage about pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. That's exactly my point. If you're not going to try to live a good life, you know, to work hard at being a good person, then I don't see how God could let you into heaven. There has to be some work to it. Maybe a lot. It just, it just can't be free. You know, Lamar, there are actually some free things in life. I mean, how about the tremendous opportunities that, that you and I have been given in life, uh, the families we were born into, uh, the country we were born into, our abilities and talents, uh, our physical health. I mean, the list goes on. Well, true, but in my gut, I just feel so strongly that God expects us to be good, you know, to, to do something. 
Well, certainly it's true that God expects, uh, you could even say commands, certainly wants us to be good. But remember, Lamar, the issue is not whether or not it's good to be good. Of course it's good to be good. It's a win-win for us and for God. When I do what the Bible tells me, uh, the way I'm supposed to treat my wife or my kids or my neighbor or clients, life goes much better for everybody. But the question we're dealing with now is, is more precise than that, and it's, does living a good life have anything to do with getting us forgiven by God and into heaven? And the answer from the Bible to that question is an emphatic no. In the letter that Paul wrote to the Christians in Ephesus, he said, For by grace you've been saved through faith. That's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But, Bill, it just seems that we ought to have to do something for it. The problem is that as soon as you begin to come up with a reasonable and godly definition of what that something might be, that's when you begin to realize that that's the problem. We always fall so far short of that something good. Do you remember the analogy that we talked about before about swimming to Hawaii? You mean about starting out from California, trying to swim to Hawaii, and uh, getting distances based on how good a life you've led? Some people like Mother Teresa swim 100 miles. Uh, Hitler didn't even get 100 meters. And the rest of us up somewhere in between? Hey, I'm impressed. Now, uh, do you also remember the bottom line of that story? Well, I, th I think your point was that although some of us swim further than others, we all drown thousands of miles short. Exactly. The point is not that getting to heaven by means of a gift is too easy. The point is that earning our way is absolutely impossible. We all fall so far short of the requirements of a holy, a perfect, and a just God that we stand condemned before him because of our performance. We just can't get there from here that way. There has to be a totally different solution. Let me try another illustration. Imagine that somebody comes up to me and says, Bill, I think you ought to have a new Learjet. I would naturally assume that they were joking, of course. By the way, you know how expensive those things are, Lamar? As a matter of fact, I do. You know, some people call them pocket rockets. Uh, they started about $5 million, and that's without any interior. I got to tell you, a Learjet's not just a little bit out of my league. It's laughably impossible. No banker in his right mind would lend me 50 cents to buy it, and, and even if I had the skill to somehow make it myself, which <laughs> most certainly I do not, uh, I couldn't even afford the parts. Now, what if this gentleman identifies himself as Nelson Rockefeller and proceeds to tell me, Bill, I know you could never afford that kind of transportation, but I can. In fact, I've already purchased it for you, and I've put some extra money in the fund so that the interest will provide for fuel and maintenance and pilots. I just like to do this every once in a while, and here are the papers. Take your time and get back with me if you're interested. Well, I suppose uh, Mr. Rockefeller could easily make good on an offer like that if he really wanted to. Well, he sure could. And the point of the illustration is simply this. There are only two options for me in this Learjet. It is either utterly impossible or it's free. Either someone who can pay the price of the plane pays the price and offers it to me as a gift, or I'll never have it. Now, just because it's free to me, that doesn't mean it's easy or cheap. I think it's the same way with us and God. I don't think I get the connection, Bill. 
Well, according to the Bible, the penalty or the price of sin is spiritual death and separation from God. If I pay the penalty, that means hell for me. No amount of good deeds can possibly atone for the wrong I've done in my life and buy heaven for me. As one songwriter put it, I owed a debt I couldn't pay. Jesus paid a debt he didn't know. In other words, he stepped up to the cross and paid the price of my forgiveness with his own life. Like the Learjet, if I have to pay for it myself, pay for my forgiveness as justice demands, I'll never attain it. Jesus paid the ultimate price and offered me a gift. Impossible or free? Those are my only options. Well, then, exactly what is our part or our responsibility? If it's not performing good deeds, what is it? Well, at one point during the public and earthly ministry of Jesus, his disciples were obviously concerned about this same issue. And they asked him, what must we do that we may work the works of God? They wanted to get it right. Exactly what do we have to do to qualify for heaven? And his answer? Well, here's what Jesus said. He said, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one whom he has sent. Jesus couldn't have made it plainer. If he wanted them to perform good deeds to qualify for heaven, this would have been the perfect time to say so. But instead, he made it clear that the response he wants from us is simply faith in him. Belief. Period. Well, if, if belief or faith really is the key, then I'd like to know what the word believe means. It sounds like an awful lot is riding on it. Uh, by the way, I have a friend who defines faith as believing something you know isn't true. <laughs> Could that friend possibly be a skeptic? Now, Bill, what would give you that impression? Seriously, I, I do remember you rejecting that kind of anti-intellectual approach, uh, something about faith not being a leap into the dark, but rather a step into the light. Great memory. I'm impressed again. In terms of the relationship between faith and reason, I think there are two mistaken extremes. The first extreme is the one your friend expressed, that reason and faith are somehow mutually exclusive. Biblical faith assumes the need for investigation and evidence as part of the process. You could even say that a certain amount of skepticism is actually encouraged in the Bible. Another word for that is discernment. There is definitely a biblical basis for the idea of looking before you take the leap. Okay, that's one extreme. What's the other one? Well, the other extreme assumes that thinking right intellectually and theologically about God is all there is to faith. Jesus said we should love God with our heart, soul, strength, and mind. So the mind part is definitely important, but there's more to a true faith response to God than just correct thinking. I'm uh, curious as to what you mean by more than mind. But before I get into that, I still have a question about the intellectual part of faith. Can you have doubts and still have faith? For instance, I, I believe there is a God, and after a fair amount of reading and thinking, I've come to the conclusion that Jesus is God. Hmm. Uh, that's significant. See there? I have been paying attention. But occasionally, a doubt will pop into my mind. Do you think, Bill, that that means I really don't have faith yet? Well, I don't think so. I once heard a very succinct statement that, that helped me with the relationship between faith and doubt. And it's simply that faith is not defined as a lack of doubting, but rather as a, a, as a decision based on the evidence. 
You mean you can have faith and doubt at the same time, maybe? Yeah, exactly. For instance, suppose somebody had come up before we got on that plane to come back home after the training seminar and and asked us if we were absolutely certain of the safety of flying, if we were completely free of doubts. If they'd asked that, what would you have said? I'd have said that the odds were pretty good, excellent, actually, but I would also say that I had a certain amount of doubt, a small doubt. Now, even though you had some doubt, that doubt didn't prevent you from boarding the airplane. Nor did that doubt keep you from reaching the destination. You made a decision to put your trust in the pilot and in the airplane in spite of some doubt. I think it's the same way with faith in Christ. A person can make a decision to believe in Christ even if they're not completely free of doubt. Bill, I hate to be picky or be guilty of splitting hairs, but how much doubt can you have? Is there any way to know what the limit would be? Well, obviously, it'd be pretty difficult to try to quantify a a particular or a certain amount of doubt. But maybe the uh, legal approach that we've talked about before would be a starting point. Not beyond a shadow of a doubt or without any doubt, but beyond reasonable doubt. Or you could use the less strenuous burden of proof required in civil cases, which is a preponderance of the credible evidence. Now, that's the one where the scales might just tip only slightly and a big judgment could be awarded even though there might be a a lot more room for doubt? Yeah. C.S. Lewis suggested that it would be simply stupid for a man to try to force himself to believe something if he thought the evidence for it was bad. But Lewis warned that even after someone becomes convinced through reason that the evidence for the truth claims of Christianity are solid, that they would soon be assailed by doubt. That's comforting. Uh, it's, It's somewhat of a relief to know that I'm not the only one, that some doubts are normal. Well, he went on to say that if the doubts arise because of some new evidence or some new fact, that you should stop and use your reason to evaluate the evidence. Well, why else would doubts arise? Well, Lewis said that in in his experience, doubts didn't usually arise because of his reason, but because of his emotions and his imagination. Years ago, when you went in for surgery, the anesthetic was administered by placing a mask over your face. Reason tells you you need the surgery and that you wouldn't want the surgery without the anesthetic, but your emotion and imagination may move you to a point of near panic. In the same way, doubts can come about our faith in God because we've just received some bad news or because we're being tempted to do something we want to do but know we shouldn't or because we know that a lot of our friends don't believe the way we do. In fact, there's a sense in which faith means holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. Lewis said that unless we learn to do this, we could neither be a a sound Christian or a sound atheist, but just a creature dithering about with our beliefs really dependent on on the weather and our state of digestion. Well, Bill, based on that understanding of faith, uh, I feel much better about my doubts. I've weighed the evidence and the balance, and I've concluded that Jesus really is who he claimed to be. Now, what about the other part of faith you referred to as more than intellectual? As I hinted a few minutes ago, Lamar, I think that while intellectual understanding and investigation, while I think that's a necessary starting point, I think there's something else that's an essential ingredient in true faith in the biblical sense of the word, which is an act of the will. An act of the will? You mean choice or free will like you've talked about before? Exactly. 
the word believe is used nearly 200 times in the New Testament as the only condition for salvation and eternal life. So it really is crucial to understand what it means. In the Middle Ages, they used three words to indicate the, the full meaning of the word believe in the Bible, notitia, essentia, and fiducia. Well, of course, yes, we all are well familiar with that. Uh, but excuse me, Bill, my Latin is a little rusty. Uh, translation, please. Those three words simply mean notice, assent, and faith. Uh, notice means simply observing the facts and the truth claims in question. In the case of Christianity, the facts are, one, that there is a personal, loving, and holy God. Two, that all humans are created in the image of God. Three, that we've sinned and stand condemned before that God. And fourthly, that God himself came to this earth in a human body to pay the penalty for our sin so we could be pardoned and spend eternity with him in heaven. And uh, we need to notice what those facts are. That's the first step. But obviously, Bill, just noticing the facts isn't enough. Right. And that brings us to the second word, assent which means coming to the point where you think those facts are true. Okay. Uh, is, isn't that what we were discussing just a minute ago about weighing the evidence on the scales? Exactly. Assent means sorting through the evidence and, until it makes sense in your own mind. Both notice and assent require the use of our intellect, our brains. Biblical faith, like we've discussed before, is not a leap into the dark. We use our minds. And that brings us to the third word they used in the Middle Ages to describe what belief really means, fiducia or faith. Is this where we get into having some sort of an emotional experience? No. This third word may not involve, in fact, in my experience, usually does not involve some kind of intense emotional outbreak. This is, in its simplest sense, an act of the will. It's a decision to place our trust in Jesus Christ. But if you've noticed the facts you've just described and come to the conclusion in your own mind that it's actually true, then isn't faith basically automatic? No, it's not quite the same thing. There are plenty of people who believe the basic facts we just talked about but have never made a decision to trust in Jesus Christ for the total forgiveness of their sins. How could that be? You remember our discussion about the, the gates of heaven and the, and the big question? Sure, uh... Something like if you were at the pearly gates and God asked why he should let you in, then what would you say to him? As I recall, I think my answer was, you know, when you first asked me, that I thought I'd led a pretty good life. Which indicates? Well, which indicates I'm still trusting in good old Lamar to uh, earn a reservation for heaven and that I need to quit trusting in good old Lamar and begin trusting in Jesus Christ. Exactly. And... And that's what that final and essential part of real faith is all about, making a decision to transfer the trust. Rather than trusting in myself and my performance, it's a matter of placing, placing my trust in him and in his payment. Well, you're right. That's the part I haven't done yet, partially because I never really understood it before, and also partly because I'm still struggling with the idea of, of uh, Lamar doing nothing to earn or deserve this gift. Isn't it possible that what God wants is faith and good deeds? I mean, I understand now that I could never atone for my huge number of sins by myself and that my good deeds by themselves would never be enough. But what about the 
both-and approach rather than the either-or approach. Remember the phrase from the verse I referred to earlier, not of yourselves, a gift, not of works? In Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome, he makes an even stronger statement, and he puts it in more exclusive terms. He says something like, the gift is given to the one who does not work for it. The idea is that it can't be a gift if we're doing something, anything, to earn it. The concept of grace and and good deeds are mutually exclusive. They're like oil and water. They just don't mix. I know we've talked about this before a couple of times, but I think the point is finally sinking in. Lamar, imagine that you have an only son and I have an only son and that we head out to the lake for a Sunday afternoon picnic. You and I are cooking hamburgers while the boys go for a swim. And let's say, unbeknownst to us, my son decides to show off and he gets out too deep and starts to drown. Your son decides to attempt to save my son, knowing that it might even cost him his life. And let's imagine further that your son is successful in saving my son's life, but that he drowns in the process. Now, after all efforts at resuscitation have failed, if I approached you on the shore and said, Lamar, I really appreciate the sacrifice your son has made for our family, and and I'd like to pay you something for his life, then imagine... What if, what if I reach in my pocket and hand you a $5 bill? How would you feel about my offer? Well, Bill, I think I'd feel like punching you in the face. What an insult to insinuate that my son's life could be paid for at all, let alone bought for a few lousy bucks. Precisely. When you and I come to God offering our good deeds as even a partial payment, it not only fails to impress him, I think it ends up being the ultimate offense, an insult to his great gift of grace. The only proper response is to humbly accept that offer of grace and forgiveness. I uh, I see your point, Bill. It it really would be an insult to God's love and sacrifice. I can tell you this, though. If someone saved my son's life, even though, even though I'd never insult them by offering to pay, I'd be looking for ways to show gratitude the rest of my life. And that happens to be one of the legitimate responses, one of the valid motivations for living life in a way that pleases God, one of the good motivations for doing good deeds. Not to earn forgiveness, but to thank Him for the forgiveness I've already received. Okay. Um, Bill, I feel like I'm uh, getting close to this step of faith, or uh, as you put it, transfer of trust. Even though I'm not quite there yet, Uh, But I'd like to know one more thing about this decision we've been discussing. I mean, uh, how do you actually do it? If it's a prayer, uh, well, I just don't have much experience in that department. Lamar, as, as you already know, I think this is the most important decision that any of us ever makes in our entire lives. Yet it's as simple as receiving a gift. You just reach out to God and take it. But, But what would a person or what would I say, Bill? More, I'd just encourage you to have a, a simple conversation with God, first to expressing to Him your, your understanding of the problem. And remember, the problem is that God's a holy and perfect God and, and that you've sinned and separated yourself from Him. Next, uh, simply express your thanks for His solution of sending His Son to die on the cross in your place to pay the penalty for your sins. And then finally, tell Him that you accept Jesus Christ, that you receive the gift of His payment and that you're placing your trust in Christ and not in your own goodness. And that's it? That's it. 
biblical belief, Lamar, it, it is a commitment kind of a belief. But it's not a commitment to what we're going to do for him in the future. Rather, it is a commitment to trust in what he's already done for us in the past. Wow. Uh, now that it's starting to fall into place, the whole thing is pretty amazing. On one hand, it's the last thing I'd expect God to offer, you know, this grace thing. On the other hand, I think you're right about nothing else working. Seems like somebody wrote a song about that. It's called Amazing Grace. I've heard that. (laughs) As I understand it, the words were written by a slave trader who came to a, a point of deep shame about the life he'd led and to a point of deep gratitude for God's offer of forgiveness. Sort of like the man Jesus talked about who said very simply, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What a lunch this has been, Bill. We, uh, we get into these conversations and I lose track of the time. Speaking of which, didn't you say you had a meeting at 1 o'clock? Right, I do, but it's only a few minutes from here, so I'm okay. All right, good. By the way, I checked with Jan on that dinner date idea, and a week yeah. from Friday works well for us if it's still good for you. Oh, that's great. We're both really looking forward to that. Mm-hmm.